0: Welcome to Discovering Nutrition with Chronometer. I'm your host and community marketing manager, Elisa. And today I am thrilled, no, ecstatic, to have on very, very special guest, Dr. Mary Claire Haver. Dr. Mary Claire Haver is here to change how women feel about aging by shedding light on the journey through menopause. This board-certified OB-GYN shares her advice with more than 2 million followers on TikTok by talking about weight gain, sleep changes, hot flashes, and mental health issues through her lifestyle plan, The Galveston Diet. This three-pronged plan encourages fuel refocusing, intermittent fasting, and anti-inflammatory nutrition to manage hormonal symptoms, stabilize weight, and revitalize your body as it ages to provide benefits that will truly last a lifetime. If you're like me and in your 20s or 30s and think that this podcast isn't for you, think again. There is so much preventative advice that we can do today to change our future for tomorrow. As always, this podcast is for general purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including getting medical advice. The use of information from this podcast is at the user's own risk and is not to be substituted for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. I can't wait to get this one started. Let's dive in. Today, we have on a very special guest. Mary Claire Haver of the Galveston Diet. Um, We've actually adapted Chronometer to have specific settings for the Galveston Diet. So you've made a huge impact, I think, on your followers, but also on our community as well. If you could just briefly give us a little bit of your background, I know that from what I've read, you kind of had a problem that you had personally that you wanted to solve, and there just wasn't any literature or information out there. So you can maybe touch on the origin story. That would be amazing. Sure.
1: So I'm 54 years old and fully menopausal and I've been using in my head. I say it as chronometer, but I think I'm pronouncing it incorrectly.
0: You can say it however you want. We all say it differently. So you're good.
1: I've been using this app to help me track my nutrition. Gosh, I want to say 2018, 2019, maybe. So, a little background about me: I'm a board-certified obstetrician-gynecologist, and I live and work in outside of Houston, Texas. I live in Galveston, hence the name of the Galveston Diet. And the Galveston Diet was born out of my frustration with the "calories in, calories out" mantra not really serving myself or my patients who were kind of my my age and my stage in life where we were starting to go through perimenopause and menopause and struggling with really unexplained weight gain and very long story short through my like research I discovered Lots of things I didn't understand previously because we weren't really taught anything about nutrition in medical school, very little, other than like scurvy or rickets or things with severe you know, vitamin deficiencies. But just kind of the day-to-day interactions of macro and micronutrients in our body and how that influences our health was really left out of it. And I joke that they had the Supreme Court definition of nutrition in medical school, like porn, you know it when you see it. So like we were never really the nuances of how to teach someone how to eat. And so I went back to school and got reeducated from Tulane University and became certified in their culinary medicine course, which was a medical nutrition course for advanced practitioners and really learned a ton. So when I started, you know, trying to help my patients and come up with a program for them, we were focusing more on nutritional components than just calories And I I figured an app would be the easiest way than keeping a handwritten journal because the apps tend to have databases with nutrition information. So then my daughter starts uh, undergrad and she's a nutrition science major. And she says, mom, there's this great app that my professors recommend called Chronometer, And I think you should check it out. It has a really clean database and it was built not for fab diets. It was actually built for nutrition. I said, okay. And I was just immediately blown away by the quality of the information that was in chronometer and how flexible it was for me to be able to teach, you know, my, my students and my patients utilizing it as a, a tool, such an important tool and um, just really high quality data that was coming out of it.
0: Yeah. I think it's interesting because I've worked here for five years. And when I started, I was just solely in the calorie tracking, same kind of thing, you know, and I, And then I learned about macronutrients because we have a nutrition scientist parent on staff. And then I dove into micros and I was like, this has completely changed the way that I feel, you know, like maybe I didn't gain weight or lose weight, but my energy levels just started absolutely soaring. So I know that one of the reasons that we work really well with you is we both really believe in, in a holistic approach to health and making sure you're getting nutrients. I know that on your diet specifically, you encourage tracking a number of different nutrients, notably vitamin D, fiber, magnesium, omega Mm threes. Recently, I saw you started encouraging tracking added sugars. Mm -hmm. Could you just dive into why those specific nutrients?
1: Sure. So let me talk about added sugars first, and then I'll go with the other ones. So Some of the, I've done a lot of research on why women tend to have body composition changes in midlife to do with their declining hormone levels. And it has to do with increasing insulin resistance, which increases inflammation, changes our gut microbiome. And one of the keys Then I looked at studies where they actually looked at behavior and different, you know, nutrient profiles or diets. And when I say diet, you have to understand in medicine, diet is a pattern of eating. It is not a fat. We're not talking Mm -hmm. about keto or paleo or, or anything. This is pattern of how people eat like the Mediterranean diet in medicine. We all know that that's you know, it's not a fat. So one of the key things that we know in women, there was a great study that was done in menopausal women who were overweight and obese, and they tracked their added sugars. They had one group just eat whatever they wanted, and they had the other one try to keep their added sugars to less than 25 grams per day. And added sugars are the sugars added in cooking and processing, and it wasn't until 2021 that those were even included on the nutrition labels. So some of that elbow grease, you know, has been taken, the work has been done for us if we just read the labels. And the reason for that is, you know, an apple versus the equivalent amount of sugar in table sugar, say. When we ingest that apple, we're also getting tons of micronutrients, fiber, minerals, vitamins, you know, things that keep us healthy. And the absorption of that glucose, of the fructose is much, much slower than it would be had we eaten the same amount of, of just pure fructose or or glucose. And it's, causes our insulin levels to go down. It's not as toxic to the gut microbiome. There's just so many things that, that keep it healthier for us. So women who keep those added sugars less than 25 grams per day, like as a rule have much less visceral fat than, or abdominal fat, belly fat, we call it in layman's terms, than a woman who does not. So teaching women, it's kind of a new thing. No one's really thought about it before the the keto movement really kind of demonized sugars. And just that deeper understanding of the difference between types of sugars and how they affect our body. And we're not saying you can never have a cookie or a brownie or a soda if that's your choice. But you know, if you're consistent about limiting that intake of added sugar to less than 25 grams per day, you're going to be a lot healthier than women who don't.
0: Right? Yeah, and I know that that is something that we start tracking for all of our users. Even if the information isn't necessarily on the nutrition label, we often will have it within within our database. So. It's awesome that you're making people more aware of that. I think that there has been this demonization of carbs in general. And I think we are starting to see from, from my perspective, a shift in that. I know that you, I, I heard you on a podcast say something that I, that I also say, and that is that food doesn't have morals. There's no good <laughs> and bad food. And I think it's really important to have like a, a broad diet so we can reach most of our nutrient intake. One of the things that I was curious about, because you said that you're, you're in menopause right now and I'm not there yet. Is this, is your diet, the Galveston diet, something that if I started doing now, would you recommend someone in their thirties doing it now to prevent these things going forward? Or is this something that's already aimed at women who are struggling with, with that visceral fat?
1: So that's a great question. And I am so, 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 so glad you asked it. We know that women, as they go through the menopause transition, which can begin as early as 35, it's going to begin for you somewhere between 35 and 45, 95% chance of that. If you have these habits in place, a diet rich in magnesium, a diet rich in fiber, a diet low in added sugars, a diet low in pro-inflammatory components, a diet high in anti-inflammatory components. You are going to have, you'll never not, it, your your menopause is genetically and environmentally predetermined and 100% of us will go through it. You can't get out of menopause at this point, okay? It's going to happen. But your your you, the way your body reacts to it, how your health changes is going to be dramatically different if you can get these principles adopted and just part of your daily habits on the front end.
0: Yeah, they, they say one of my favorite quotes is uh, an ounce of prevention as we're the pound of cure. Pound of and, care. So, and so I was just wondering, you know, as someone who, after listening to most of what you say, I'm like, this is probably something I should be paying attention to, to soon. Are there any other things that you think would help ease the transition? from perimenopause to menopause, or is it just really paying attention to your diet that you think is most important?
1: So exercise is incredibly important. Getting those exercise habits. Remember, you have to get out of your mind that you're moving to be thin, you Mm -hmm. know, wellness and your health and how you want to age and go through this menopause is less about the size of your body and more about the size of your, of your health, (laughs) you know, And so that number on the scale is a really poor determinant of your risk of chronic disease and your health. And, you know, paying attention to things like getting really good at being, if I could go back and tell my 25 year old self, it would be like, stop doing so much aerobics, stop running Mm -hmm. so much, pick up some weights, focus on maintaining your muscle mass or even getting stronger because that muscle is going to determine so many things about your functionality, your health, your insulin resistance as you age. Let's, Get your stress relief under control. Figure out what's going to work for you. Get those habits locked in of self-care. I mean, this is not an option. And if you get, you know, when we talk about menopause care, it's a toolkit. Nutrition is always first. Doesn't matter how much hormones you take. If you don't have a handle in your nutrition, you're, you're just not going to get the most out of hormone therapy. Number two is going to be exercise, moving your body to be stronger. You want a stronger mind, you want stronger bones, stronger muscles, and a stronger heart. And that's a combination of balance, resistance, cardiovascular activity. All three are important. Then supplementation can be helpful. But remember, the majority of your nutrition should come from food. We only supplement when there's a gap. Okay. And then we talk about pharmacology. You know, what is if you're menopausal or perimenopausal, is hormone therapy an option for you? What are some other pharmaceutical options that could be helpful for some severe symptoms that you're having that are disrupting your life? We talk about stress reduction and we talk about sleep optimization and getting all of those little parts of the toolkit down before you ever go through menopause is you're just going to have so much of a better time of it.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I, I personally even wish I could go back you know maybe like 10 or 15 years and start getting some of these these pieces in place i think you know when i started tracking calories i was using a pen and paper there there wasn't apps at that time and so for me calorie tracking cuz i i use chronometer personally every day it's crazy what it is when it's just a habit how easy it is people are like it's a lot of work or it takes time and i'm like it's just like anything like brushing your teeth you know you you track a couple days And then after, I mean, the verdict is out. As far as I know, about how long it takes to actually get a habit—if it's thirty days or sixty-six or hundred—but I I have it down to a science now. So it's it's really important that that I do that. And I encourage anyone um, if you're finding it it cumbersome to send me a message on Instagram, and (laughs) I will give you some hacks. One of the questions I was curious about was obviously we know your nutrient. Uh, guidelines. And we have, like I said, those in the app. What are your recommendations for exercise? Do you have specific recommendations about that?
1: So I I don't have any training in do this many reps Mm -hmm. or, you know, and how to proper, you know, I work out with a personal certified personal trainer. so, So I'm coming from it as someone who is not a CPT. And here's what I know. We know that zone two training which is the cardiovascular zone, the heartbeat, basically where you're just below not being able to talk through a workout. So there's, there's formulas online. I wear a tracker. I don't have it on for the video, but you know, I know what my resting heart rate is and my max heart rate. So I'm able to get a, you know, pretty accurate zone Mm -hmm. for zone two and spending about 150 minutes a week in that zone and whatever way brings you joy. For me, I walk on an elevated treadmill um, while I watch Bridgerton or (laughs) something on (laughs) Netflix. make the time pass or I listen to a podcast or some music or something. And then also resistance training at least two days a week, hitting all the major muscle groups. I see in my patients in my clinic, I have a menopause clinic and I'm able to measure fat mass and muscle mass and, you know, things, you know, body water and things outside of just your normal weight or your BMI, we can do, I can measure visceral fat in a patient. And so I can make specific nutritional recommendations around that. And so when I see that they have low muscle mass, we're going to try to spend more time doing resistance training because it's so important to have enough muscle mass to sustain you into your later years.
0: And I think that we're really seeing the importance of that, especially people consuming protein to, you know, make sure that their, their muscles are, are well fed. That's something that I, uh, also, definitely need to start working on is some more strength training, because I also just love running. I love the high that I get from the run and just being outdoors and listening to music. But definitely we're learning that that muscle is body armor. How do you find that recommendations change for, say, we have two kind of of different women. We have one who's into iron men. You know she's out there absolutely training all the time versus a woman who's sedentary. What are what are the guidelines? Are they are they different? Do you work with women who are going through menopause Mm -hmm. that are on more like still elite
1: athletes? Yeah. Yes. I do. And they're they're tough because there's a big psychological component when you're used to a certain level of health and then your hormone rug gets pulled out from under you and everything changes in your body and you think you can out exercise it. And so that is a really emotional thing for a lot of athletes is the realization of they can't, you can't out work out this, you can't out exercise it, you can't out eat it. It doesn't matter how much money you have, you know, (laughs) that it is going to change your body in ways that you never expected. So having them, you know, come to that realization, and this is where when they're, they're still training at those elite levels, I have to bring in someone who's Who's a nutrient? You know, someone with a registered dietitian who has expertise in this area, because I don't know how to help them fuel for training. I'm much better. The majority of my patients are not elite athletes, and you know, I'm able with the with the athletes, able to get them in, get their measurements done, give them nutrition, basic nutritional recommendations. But I am not qualified because their training schedule is so intense, and they really need an expert in that area.
0: That's awesome to consider. I just was. You know i see all these these women that are um in their mid-40s that are just absolutely crushing out there and i'm like they look like they have you know seven to ten percent body fat and i'm like maybe they're doing something maybe they have like the secret sauce but what from what you're saying we're all we're all just gonna go through this mm-hmm. so what happens within the body that makes these changes anyway like if i'm eating the same diet at 25, that I'm at 45. What has changed that's making it like my body composition change anyway? Sure. No, great question.
1: So there are things that just the process of your ovaries shutting down and the loss of the the endogenous estrogen that you used to make every month that does to your body outside of just aging, because sometimes it gets hard to untangle what is just getting older. And what is specific to menopause? So we know that, and that the research right now is being done on why, how estrogen is affecting each of these organ systems. But what we see is through the menopause transition, regardless of what age you go through, an acceleration so that you kind of have a steady state weight gain the whole way through. But if you break open what is weight, but a measure of body water, body fat, and muscle mass, right? And so your fat deposition accelerates and your muscle mass loss accelerates. And so you're replacing muscle with fat and you're gaining a lot more fat on top of that. And we're trying to discover why this is happening. Now, we know that women who are given the option of hormone therapy and take it through the transition and early menopause don't have as much fat new fat deposition as women who don't and the research now is being done around why is this happening
0: that's very interesting i'm just out of curiosity because i know that i've seen stuff like pool sculpting and the, have you heard are you familiar with that mm-hmm. is yeah. that is that something Spot that reduction yeah is that something that women could do to a- avoid this entirely or is this um, so
1: I've seen a lot of, well, I'll just go get lipo or full sculpting, mm-hmm, thing, mm-hmm. you know, the the problem with visceral fat, visceral is intra-abdominal fat. And this is the fat that is deposited in and around our abdominal organs. So remember that full sculpting or liposuction is for subcutaneous fat. That is the fat that's just under the skin, between the skin and the muscle. Okay. Right. You could take a knife and cut your leg open and you'd see the fat there. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that is super easy to remove. And actually one of the safest ways to do it. There is no other than an omentectomy with a cancer surgery, there's no one is doing any surgical removal of the visceral fat. And it's the visceral abdominal fat that we see get get massively deposited through perimenopause and endomenopause. And this is the fat that is pro-inflammatory and linked to seven out of the top 10 causes of death in women.
0: So I noticed that you speak quite a bit about inflammation. Mm-hmm. Can you just explain what that is to people who might not be familiar with it?
1: Sure. So I think most people are pretty familiar with the concept of acute inflammation, though you may not call it that. So if you twisted your ankle or you stubbed your toe or you got poked by a nail or something, your your body, acute inflammation is required to keep us alive. And it is our body's um, way of wrapping itself around an invader to get rid of an an injury. So, and when we do a mechanical injury, like a arm, you break your arm or something, you know, your body, uh, cytokines and things are developed to like force blood to go to that area, to get the white blood cells there, to begin the healing process. And it kind of wraps itself around wherever the injury is. And in the uh, short term, it gets red and swollen and hot hence, acute inflammation. Um, if we get stung by a bee, if we, you know, get a cut that gets infected, you know, all the things that happen. It's all happened to all of us. Um, chronic inflammation is a little trickier. This is when our immune system gets triggered, but it's a very low level. You don't really notice it, but it never stops. It never ends. So this is the hallmark of a lot of autoimmune disease, but we see it a lot with aging and we see it really accelerate for women in the menopause transition. And we believe that is some of the reason why we're seeing this this body composition change at this age. And there are things that we can do nutritionally to help slow this process down.
0: What are some of those things?
1: So I alluded to one earlier, watching the amount of added sugars in your diet, added sugars, not, you know, outside of moderation are very, very highly inflammatory for multiple reasons. They cause a rapid rise of glucose in the bloodstream, which causes a rapid rise of insulin, which is pro-inflammatory. Also, our gut doesn't like it. Our gut microbiome does not like that much sugar. Okay. Mm -hmm. It can tolerate some, but you know, massive dumps of simple sugar are kind of toxic to the gut microbiome. And then the second is making sure you're getting enough fiber in your diet. So if you follow me on social media, we had a, uh, but right now we're up to about 110,000 people signed up for this belly fat challenge.
0: Amazing. And
1: with a free challenge where we just had people, you know, adopt some new behaviors that have been scientifically proven to decrease visceral fat and the pretty awesome (laughs) to lead the challenge because it made me so good about my own habits. I'm human like the rest of us. And so Mm -hmm. sharing, sharing my own journey through this and tracking my own nutrition and showing people what I'm eating um, has been really fun. So, so 25 grams or more of fiber in your diet per day um, has been feed your gut microbiome, keeps your limits, the rate at which glucose is absorbed into the bloodstream and sugars. Third is that type two um, zone two training. Zone 2 training is really really effective but you really need to probably hit 150 minutes a week divided into at least three sessions so that could be three 45 minute walks or 5 30 minute walks just you know being really consistent with that zone pushing yourself to where you're almost breathless now, or tracking it with one of the trackers, turmeric has been shown to be helpful. So if you have sources of turmeric in your diet, if you're drinking the tea, I have a turmeric supplement that that I've created for my, my patients and followers that seems to work well with most people. Um, probiotics. So eating something rich in probiotics every day, yogurt, kimchi, miso, Um, Chinese pickles or a probiotic supplement uh, um, is also really helpful. And adequate sleep, lowering your cortisol levels. That was part of our challenge as well. So choosing some kind of an exercise for you that is stress reducing. And that looks like different things to different people. For me, I did meditation and journaling, um, which I'd fallen out of the habit of. So it was really nice to kind of get back into it and uh, get back into that practice.
0: So I'm glad that you're ending on on that little bit because I did have a question about cortisol. So that that is shown to increase inflammation. That's a stress hormone if I'm if I'm correct in saying mm-hmm. so. Mm-hmm. Is that something that people can just manage through lifestyle so, changes? You know, cortisol? Yes,
1: usually. So cortisol is an important hormone that we need in our bodies again, it keeps us alive, okay? Cortisol is is in the fight or flight. It's meant to quickly release blood glucose so you can run away from a saber-toothed tiger. Okay. That's how we were genetically, you know, you need energy fast when you're hit with something you didn't see coming and you get this dump of adrenaline, which then causes this massive release of blood stored glucose from our, from our liver. And so that you have the energy to get the hell out of whatever situation you need. But because of you know, I don't know, pandemics and elections and the way we're living our lives, over scheduled, overhyped, over everything. We never get those cortisol levels to come down because of lifestyle. And that is just slowly tearing away at our health. And so doing things that, you know, put you in a better space, allow you to let go of those thoughts and fears for however long, getting off of social media, picking up a book, reading an uplifting book or, or listening to a podcast, whatever, whatever, whatever that looks like for you, you know, um, for me, It was um, putting up some boundaries, even with my own family, Mm -hmm. of learning to say no and prioritizing the family I created and my own mental health and well-being, walking away from a job that I loved in so many ways, but really wasn't serving me and creating a job that I wanted to do (laughs) in the way (laughs) that I wanted to do it. So um, that was really powerful for me.
0: I think that women especially struggle with this guilt about self-care. That, that's my experience no. and I'm and, and watching as well. And on a podcast, I'm not sure which one it was, but you likened self-care to putting on your own oxygen mask first in like an airplane situation. And I was just like, yes, <laughs> because no. we are programmed to just you know, fulfill other people's needs first. And self-care is often like, oh, is that selfish? And I always think like, I need to do my best by me to give my best to anybody else. Right. And so I,
1: I just took me a long time to come to mm-hmm. that realization. I mean, I look at my husband, I mean, greatest dad, father, you know, would do it again, but you know, like he takes a nap and never apologizes for it or thinks anything. If he's tired, he lays down. He, you know, always would like pat- his own bag while I'm frantically trying to get the kid I have two daughters so like it kind of fell onto to me for no mm-hmm. reason if I would have asked him to do it he would have done it but it, like just the societal roles that we had mm-hmm. um of that's my job now he has his jobs trust me and things I don't like to do <laughs> so you know every every relationship has a division of labor <laughs> so Absolutely. you know we've with all of the, the awareness now on social media about norms and gender and societal roles, it's really he and I have had a, some fun conversations about, you know, sharing some of the burden. And so um, with each other's with each other's roles and it's been really fun and positive at our house.
0: I love that. I think that it just feels so good. You know, like after I come back from a run or a hike or an adventure, I just feel so much better. I'm like everyone is getting the best of me because I went and did something for myself. And that's actually not not selfish at all. I'm just curious. I wasn't planning on asking this question, but I have to. Your Instagram and TikTok, you are an absolute sensation, which has been really cool. Like to obviously we we caught wind of you. Um When you are already, you know, a a pretty big deal, but watching you just like skyrocket and take over your mention everywhere is that not so stressful? Like you have people in place, obviously, but you know, when you live your life on social media,
1: you know, I've had to take a step back and be careful. And my daughters really encouraged me to get on TikTok, and who knew Mm -hmm. that that it would explode? And it kind of freaks them out when I get recognized in public or people stop me places and. My husband, he gets a kick out of it. It happens all the time now, you know, and, but you have to remember when I'm recording those things, I'm alone in a room with my phone. There's no audience. I'm not performing for anyone. And half the stuff I do doesn't ever, no one ever sees it. You know, it's just this random video. So you just have to take it with a grain of salt. And Mm -hmm. yes, you can so get wrapped up in and allow it to affect your psyche. I've been victim of that multiple times, but I've just had to learn to put it down. And there's always tomorrow. And I got some of the best advice I got from one of my kind of, you know, mutuals on social was give yourself 24 hours. If you think that something might be controversial or you're not sure, wait a day, film it, wait a day, then go back and see if you really want to post it.
0: Mm -hmm. I have noticed just following you, like sometimes you'll I think they're called stitches, forgive me. I'm not, I'm not as well versed in the TikTok space, but if people will like comment on your diet and I was like, that would be quite challenging to always be under the microscope. But when I look at what you're doing, as opposed to other diets and why I think, you know, why we, we support you and and why I think what you're doing is so great is, You're not selling people like a a magic bullet. You know, you're just really telling them to have a more holistic diet, which I think is just amazing that you're shining light on nutrients for a group of women that have honestly probably just had 1200 calorie diets been told that they need to, you know, Absolutely.
1: You know, you're fat because you're not working hard enough. Perimenopause is make-believe. I mean, I I could tell you thousands, thousands, thousands of comments Mm -hmm. on things that have been said to people about their health and their weight and their menopause. And I'm just here to tell you, you know, what are your goals? You know, Mm -hmm. I'm when patients come to my clinic, you know, no one's coming in saying, almost no one, it's happened. The norm is not, I want a bikini body. That is not, you know, they're like, look, I have to take care of my mom. She's not doing well. And this is the long road we've got to hoe with her. And what can I do utilizing nutrition and your plan to keep my risk as low as possible for doing this to my children, Mm -hmm. you know, to to my for my choices in my life to become a burden for the next generation. And I'm like saying, yeah, (laughs) same. And the choices where I'm 54, the choices I'm making right now
0: are Mm -hmm.
1: dramatically affecting me at seventy four, if I'm lucky enough to live that long.
0: I think you're definitely on the right track, and and I I agree. I think that like for women, there is a lot of of shame and diet culture. I think that today's today's women that are growing up that are you know in their late teens or early twenties really are benefiting from. We really and and socially are more about well-fed women now, you know like we're not on those crazy caloric restrictions. One of my questions for you is you're probably working with a lot of women that have subscribed to a diet that's under 1200 calories for years. I mean I, I lived in that space as well. like sometimes I'd have 800 calories a day work out for three hours because that's what I was told I should be doing. Mm-hmm. does that have long-term ramifications? on health in the menopausal stage or yes, because if you're
1: you're continuously calorically restricting, you're not reaching your maximum muscle mass. And I see it day after day after day that women who have felt so good, so healthy, so wonderful, and we're doing okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's genetic components to this too. I don't, I come from a genetically low muscle background. So Mm -hmm. full disclosure here, but that they sacrificed muscle to get to a number on the scale. They didn't know what they were doing. And now they're suffering from the long-term ramifications of that, that they're falling and breaking, breaking hips, breaking major bones, because your your bone strength is totally tied to your, your muscle strength. And, you know, that they were sacrificing the quality of their nutrition, again, to get to a number on the scale. And now they're living with lifelong deficits and weak bone, you know, it just their neuro inflammation and and all the things, you know, low magnesium and their higher levels of depression. It's all related.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I actually, through working at chronometer identified a magnesium deficiency and my physician was like, I had these weird symptoms. My muscles were always like switching. And she's like, what's your magnesium? Like, she's like, we should track it. And I'm like, oh, I have two years of data. Hold on. And she's like, you've been getting like 35% of your recommended target. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, holy, like I have not been, this is not something I've been taught to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think what you're doing is so powerful because you're not telling women to even necessarily focus on calories. You're telling them to no. focus on nutrients and, and, and getting more of certain things and less of other things. And I think that's so powerful. One of the questions that I was wondering, I think I know the answer to, but how do you feel about supplementation when people are not reaching their goals through diet alone?
1: If, if you absolutely, I mean, I sell supplements, so <laughs> full disclosure. And it's really hard for us to get enough vitamin D. We don't absorb it well. I mean, to get to like therapeutic levels in our blood. We don't absorb it worth a darn as we get older, and that's an age-related thing. We are not going out in the sun, rightly so, to protect ourselves from skin cancer, you know, the sources of vitamin D, and we're not eating a lot of foods rich in vitamin D, naturally. So that's a really tough one. So I pretty much recommend blanket supplementation with that. The average American woman only gets about 12 grams of fiber in her diet per day. That's not even half what we really (laughs) should be getting for optimal health. And so for a lot of women, it's really tough. So often I'll recommend a fiber supplement while they work on trying to, you know, develop some new habits and routines to get the the fiber up naturally in their diet. Turmeric is not something a lot of Western culture people have a lot of. You know, if you don't know how to cook with turmeric or you don't enjoy the teas, a turmeric supplement, especially in menopause, can be helpful. Um, and so I just advise patients track what you're eating for a week or two and just see which nutrients are not coming close to the recommended daily amounts, you know, and, and then see if you can, you change your diet a bit to add in X, Y, and Z to lift you up to that level. Then, you know, but don't go under the fallacy that you can just screw it. I'm going to eat what I eat and handle and have a handful of supplements and, and call it a day. That's not how nutrition works. You must focus on the food foods and then we supplement the gaps.
0: I love that. And chronometer can help you identify those things. One of the other things that you've touched on is the importance of sleep. We did a sleep month here at chronometer two months ago. We had on Dr. Rebecca Robbins. She was absolutely sensational. Her voice. I, I asked her to read me bedtime stories because it was so wonderful what have you found on a personal note with sleep what do you recommend let's hear it.
1: so i have never been a good napper you know like my husband can sleep every movie we've ever been to every plane flight he's out like that <laughs> and why i picked obgyn as a specialty when i cannot nap you know is beyond me but i'm not doing those hours anymore <laughs> so life is better and i've noticed that since i'm not having the sleep disruption chronically from delivering babies now my patterns of sleep had gotten better, but my menopause severely disrupted my sleep. It was horrible. And I was a walking zombie. And so it took months, it took HRT, sleep hygiene. And actually I take magnesium altheronate every night to help me with sleep. Now my levels are therapeutic, but it sometimes the supplement can actually be medicinal, meaning a superphysiologic dose can be helpful you know, in moderation. And so mag has been shown to cross the blood-brain barrier better than most Mag supplements and has been shown to be helpful in sleep as well as SSRI resistant depression.
0: Is sleep one of the things that you noticed as a a sign of perimenopause and, and menopause?
1: Yes. So that was one of the first signs that something wasn't right. The hot flashes and disrupted sleep. I mean, and and even when the hot flashes got under control, I still had trouble maintaining a good level of sleep. Now, I do wear one of the sleep rings um, is that, that tracks my sleep. I, this is an aura, and it's really helped me with sleep hygiene, being more mm-hmm. aware. It's really cut down on my alcohol consumption. <laughs> and oh. so, uh, since menopause, more than one glass of wine within two hours of bedtime, forget it. If I, if I go for that second glass, I am making a conscious effort to sabotage my own sleep. There's no way around it.
0: That was, I, I wore an aura range for years. I actually don't drink alcohol. Um, but maybe once a year I will. And I was like, Oh my goodness. If I did this all of the time, I would never sleep. And I have done a lot of research. I, I write most of our social content. I get it approved by a nutrition scientist, but I was looking at all these sleep studies and the effects of alcohol and they're like, well, it will obviously help you fall asleep typically faster, but your quality of sleep is atrocious. Really poor. Yeah. Really so poor. I- and I can show
1: you on my ring, you know, mm-hmm. my data, how my resting heart rate is the biggest thing. It just will not come down.
0: And that was exactly it for me too. My resting heart rate in sleep is normally between like 45 to 50 beats a minute. And it was like 68 or something the night that I had alcohol. And I was like, for me, I I don't really enjoy the taste of alcohol personally. So I don't really feel like I'm missing out on something. I'm like, I have this science here that is showing me why I should not do this. And I'm like, this, this is, this is why, because I, I, I do like want to feel well-rested. So mm-hmm. sleep was one of the things that you noticed first is that mm-hmm. across the board for most women, like what are the symptoms that women will experience that will let them know they're, they're coming into perimenopause?
1: You know, all women's periods will stop eventually, but you mm-hmm. could have, Anything in between. (laughs) So you could have periods further apart, periods closer together, heavier, lighter, more crampy, less crampy. Any menstrual dysfunction, any change is is not off the table. So there's not one thing I can say there. 85% of us will have the hot flushes. Flashes is is kind of a misnomer because it's more of this, it lasts for much longer than a flash. Fleet disruption, about 80, 85% of us will have it with or without hot flashes. Now new studies are coming out showing decrease of about 40% of like glucose uptake in the brain. If you read the double X brain by Lisa Marconi, it's absolutely phenomenal. And she talks about the the path to Alzheimer's and dementia and how the menopause is the springboard for a lot of patients and, and the decrease in the, you know, uh, cognitive decline that happens in, in menopause. And so, I mean, like the brain fog we all talk about. Mm -hmm. So but, you know, the uh, muscle and joint pain, tons of research coming out right now looking at frozen shoulder and hip pain, knee pain, shocking feelings in the skin, a lot of of neurological things like um, itchy skin, dry skin, dry eyes, dry mouth, you know, mucus production decreases throughout our bodies. Of course, all the genital urinary symptoms, you could have more frequent UTIs, more frequent, um, you know, every your microbiome in the vagina changes. So more frequent yeast infections or bacterial vaginosis. Thinning tissue of the vagina. There's about 40 symptoms right now that we have on the list. Dental issues. I'm just, we have estrogen receptors in every organ system in our body. Our lungs, our heart, you know, palpitations. That's a big one. Um, And so... It's really kind of exciting to see all the new literature coming out. Is
0: there a test that someone can take? I I know that.
1: That's a great question. So you will see a lot of um, functional doctors claiming that, oh, we have these blood, urine, and saliva tests that are going to diagnose your perimenopause. There is no valid data to support those claims because the hormone fluctuations are so wild. So one-time urine, saliva, or 24 hours of testing is not valid. Save your money. Insurance is not going to cover that kind of testing. The diagnosis of perimenopause is made as a diagnosis of exclusion. So many of the symptoms of perimenopause are also symptoms of hypothyroidism or autoimmune disease or rheumatoid arthritis. Or, so we need to make sure those aren't the conditions going on. And then if all that testing is normal, you are most likely perimenopausal. So really, you just have to listen to the patient and talk to the patient. And then you launch into a discussion of therapeutic
0: options. One question I have as a woman on birth control, do those, would those suppress symptoms? Yes.
1: So I also, like you, was on birth control pills until my late forties for contraception, as well as treatment of polycystic ovarian syndrome. My husband was more than, but I was like, you know what? I got to stay on this stuff anyway for my other disease. I got it. You know, Mm -hmm. we're fine. And if, you know, if I got pregnant accidentally, we would have welcomed another baby, but it never happened for us. So. So then, most of my perimenopause was treated. And so mm-hmm. quite often, in early perimenopause, a low dose birth control pill is a very reasonable option for the patient,
0: so some people might, if if they're already doing that, would their symptoms be suppressed, and they might not even know that most of their
1: symptoms will most likely be suppressed. Now, not to say, when we lose that baseline ovarian estradiol production, that you may have some, but but the symptoms tend to be much milder and much less noticeable.
0: One of the other questions I have is about a hysterectomy, a woman getting a hysterectomy at an early age. How does does that affect their future health? So if she keeps her ovaries, the, the effect
1: is much, 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 much less. There is a small effect of losing your uterus as far as hormone production, but it's much, much less. But if you lose your ovaries to tumors, to you know, surgical menopause for endometriosis for you know, cancer prevention, if you have a genetic issue, whatever, and you are at much higher risk for the long-term health implications of an early menopause, which include diabetes, stroke, cardiovascular disease. So it is imperative if you've lost your ovarian function before the age of 40, if you have not been offered hormone replacement therapy, that should be malpractice because you're much higher risk for heart attacks, stroke, and cancer.
0: What is hormone replacement therapy? So
1: if you have it, it's basically the core component of all hormone therapy is going to be for menopausal hormone therapy is estradiol, is estrogen. And then we add in progesterone. For sh- Everyone gets progesterone if they still have a uterus without having an IUD in it, the progesterone containing IUD. And some women who wouldn't technically need it for endometrial protection may do well with sleep and anxiety at night. So we may add in progesterone for that testosterone is a separate animal yes our ovaries produce 50 percent of the testosterone in our bodies our adrenals will make the other half and so we do see decline natural decline in testosterone and there are some issues associated with that but we kind of address that separately
0: so we've discussed a myriad of different things we've gone over diet we've touched on sleep and on stress fasting you recommend, you recommend fasting. Uh, Most well, fast, people can fast
1: safely. Fasting is not for everyone. Certainly if it triggers an eating disorder, if you have hypoglycemia, if you've been told by a physician, you should not fast then you should not fast. But, you know, I like fasting for the anti-inflammatory benefits. It's not a great way to lose weight, you know. If you're doing it solely for weight loss, I think you're shooting yourself in the foot. There, sure, Some people will lose weight while fasting, but the majority of us, it is not an effective strategy for long-term weight loss. But what it does do is lower inflammation. And so there's some wonderful research from Mark Mattson from the National Institutes of Health who looked at neuroinflammation, specifically Alzheimer's and dementia, and utilization of fasting for those models and it was pretty compelling data enough for me to recommend it in our program
0: what is considered a fast what what window do we have to get to in uh, order for it to be fasted period of
1: time yeah so at least 12 hours is mm-hmm. considered to be when you'll start see the benefit and it gets a little tough to get all the nutrition if you go over 16 hours it gets really hard to consistently get enough nutrition you basically have to be eating nonstop for those six, four hours. So there's raging debate over this, but you know, I like to teach sustainable habits for the long term rather than quick fixes. And so I like a 16-8, you know, mm-hmm. or a 1410. It seems to be something that most people can do with minimal disruption to their schedule. They still get their family time and meal time. And it's something they feel empowered to do.
0: I think it's fasting is just so off and on. That it's very easy to to do it i i myself has have fasted i usually do like this 16 and 8 as well and i'm like i hit my fasting timer on chronometer i'm like none for the day you know what i mean it's just it's very easy because it's it is all or nothing which works for some people but again making sure that these habits are sustainable is really what we're all about as well because Fads will come and go, you know. I don't want to be gaining and losing the same ten pounds. Which for me, that was something I was. I I have tried every single diet under the sun until I started working at Chronometer, and uh, it was the same. Like I I I say I've probably lost over hundred pounds in my life, and that's this, this, <laughs> the same ten. <laughs> Honestly, on again, off again. What else do you do? You have any other recommendations about any other facets of health that could help people? Do you find that People are more likely to see positive changes when they are tracking. If there was only one change people were willing to make, what would, what would you tell them they fiber. should fiber first? Make
1: sure that they're getting fiber first, I think, is what I've seen, at least in our followers and the challenge of something that they never thought about, that they, what an impact it had on their health, how good they felt and how it led to other behaviors. Um, mm-hmm. so if you're just going to do one thing, track your fiber intake for a couple weeks and then f- work to try to get it up to twenty five grams per day.
0: I think baby steps also help sustainability. A lot of us just want something. We want it now. We don't mm-hmm. take the individual steps. We want to race right up the staircase. But I think in order for things to be sustainable, it's taking one habit, implementing it, becoming comfortable with it, and then moving on to the next. I agree. On your uh, social side, how does it feel to change so many lives? Because I went through your testimonials, you're changing lives for the better. And now, like you said, that there was a hundred over hundred thousand people signed up for your challenge. Like, how, how does that feel?
1: It's kind of surreal. And I remember, like, watching the people up; how they were giving us their email because we would email them the directions to the to the challenge. And just waking up to like another 10,000, another 10,000 and just being like, oh, my God, like people really are out there listening. And yes, we get feedback, but I'm just as human as everybody else. Not every comment is positive or you'll Mm -hmm. get someone who's just wanting to tear you down because that's what they do or, you know, and so it is a wonderful thing knowing that I said that to my husband I got a really beautiful comment last night and I read it to him I was like it's so nice to know that I actually make a difference some days and he go, "He looked at me in bed and he goes if you don't think you're out there changing lives what the hell are you doing you
0: know? well and so you just lose sight of it you know you just
1: you know you're you just lose sight there's real people out there because really so much of what I do is just talking to my phone alone <laughs>
0: But but it's it's working for so many people and we see it. We're like, we'll see us you know, a spike in users and we're like, Mary Claire must have mentioned that somewhere today. <laughs> we're like, is there a new Galveston post somewhere because our traffic just went up and I think for me, um, it's obviously on a less direct and uh scale, but when i started at chronometer i think there was 1.5 million users and now we're approaching 8 million users and i just think like it's obviously awesome to help people lose weight and that kind of thing but when i hear success success stories sorry about people's real health changing you know i get to read all of our app reviews i read every single instagram comment message i'm like we are actually helping people live better and that for me is so much more important than fitting into a pair of jeans or or whatever we're helping Mm -hmm. people hopefully live healthier happier longer lives and that's why i love my job so hope that you feel the same way about yours (laughs) okay i think that we uh got it i'm i'm so grateful that you were here mary claire thank you so much for making time uh this has been so wonderful for me on a personal level i feel like i've learned a lot and hopefully our listeners have too. Where can people find you everywhere?
1: So if you go to GalvestonDiet.com, that is our website. It has links to all our social media. I'm on TikTok and Instagram as Dr. Mary Claire, D-R-M-A-R-Y-C-L-A-I-R-E and everywhere else as the Galveston Diet.
0: That is amazing. Hopefully our users will uh, subscribe. For the people that are listening that use the app and they want to try the galveston diet we actually have settings that are already in there so you can just go to your settings menu toggle on the galveston diet and then the the preset macros and micronutrient recommendations that mary claire recommends are automatically there so perfect thanks so much for your time have a great day bye What a powerful episode of the podcast. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Mary Claire. I feel like I learned so much that's going to benefit my own health in the future. And to our listeners, I really hope that you did too. If you like this episode, make sure that you subscribe or check out our previous episodes. And we'll see you next time.